Folks, we're continuing in our Future Proof series, looking at, uh, at this revelation of Christ and a revelation uh, that's given John in this vision. And uh, Gareth uh, opened the book and started to share on the vision uh, last Sunday morning. And uh, I continued in the evening as we looked at the, uh, the place of the church in the vision. And uh, we want to think today of, of worship. Worship, what does God have to say to us today about worship today? in the light of this vision that he has given John. So we're turning to the book of Revelation, and we're going to read some verses from chapter 4, and then we're going to read some verses from the following chapter, from chapter 5. So we're reading from chapter 4, verses 2 to 8. And John writes this. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Moving on to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, but standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain 
And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Amen. Amen. And let me hand over to Gareth for God's message for us this morning. Gary, thank you so much for the introduction and the welcome, folks. This is obviously a bit strange. If you're at home watching this, you're not going to notice anything different. If you're in the building, you're going to realize I'm not actually here. Uh, That is because there has been some COVID in our house. I am COVID-free, but some of the family have got it. uh, And that means I just didn't think it would be wise to come amongst you in person this morning. But I was so excited about this text that I still wanted to preach it. So here we go. Um, Let's pray for a second before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and particularly for, for this word, this picture that John gives us, that Gary has read for us, this glimpse into that heavenly throne room, this sacred place. And I pray, Father, that as we listen for your voice this morning, we may be caught up in the spirit in the same way as John was, and we may encounter you, the living God. And our lives may be changed and challenged and filled and enriched as we linger with you this morning, Lord. So come, Holy Spirit, and transcend all the the separation that we feel because of technology and all of those things. And move amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, I'm going to show you a little video, first of all, and I want you to count the number of times the players in white pass a basketball. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? This video is from research by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri and is copyrighted. It is available for use in talks, training, and teaching on DVDs from VizCog Productions. Learn more at theinvisiblegorilla.com. So I wonder who got it right. I wonder how many of you managed to count that. I also wonder, though, how many of you saw the gorilla, because that's a really famous um, scientific experiment, psychological experiment in observation. And the idea being that everybody sees the same thing, but not everybody experiences it the same way. And over the past 30-odd years, what has been found from that little experiment is about half the people who watch it see the gorilla and the other half don't. So I wonder which half you were in. Um, but, but I think that's an incredible concept that you can be in the same room watching the same thing and experience it totally differently. Like for example, today in our church service, you're all participating in the same songs, the same Bible reading, the same mission slot, the same sermon. And there's lots going on, but there's a possibility you miss the most important thing 
or perhaps the most important person. Today's text, I want to preach it in two ways. I want to give you a picture of worship and then I want to give you a continuous posture of worship that I see in this text that Gary's read for us in our Revelation series. So first of all, a picture of worship. This is the second vision that John has. He's again caught up in the Spirit and he's brought into the throne room of heaven. It is an incredible image. And what's really important is... The voice speaks to him and says, see this, write this down. And so John isn't told what to write down. He is given a visual image that then he puts words around as he sees, as he experiences it. And that's part of the reason that there's so much old, so many Old Testament references in this glimpse of the throne room of heaven. Because John is a guy who has seeped himself in the word of God. And as he's trying to describe things, he's drawing on what he knows, on the language that he knows. And I wonder if you were in his shoes. I wonder if you were having the same vision that he was having, how you would describe it, what 21st century language you would bring around it to describe what you were seeing and what you were experiencing in the vision that God gave you. What do we see here? What does John see? What does he want us to see? Well, first and foremost, verses two and three, we see the throne at the very center. And the throne is one of the most powerful images in Revelation. Happens again and again and again and again. It is always at the center. It is the source of power. And God the Father is on the throne. And John reaches for adjectives to describe what he's saying. He's like, it's, it's like jasper. No, it's, it's, it's like rubies. No, it's, it's, it's like, like a rainbow, an emerald rainbow. He's, just, he's searching for language that he can't quite grasp. And he's not saying God's a ruby or God's a rainbow or God's jasper. He's saying it's, it's like that. It's, it's rich, it's powerful. He's rich, he's powerful, he's beautiful, he's bright. And at the center. And everything comes out from the center. What else do we see? Verses six and seven, we see four living creatures. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you'll recognize these four living creatures from there. Um, We see one like a lion. It's not a lion. It's one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. And throughout history, there's been loads of different ideas of how we are to understand these four living creatures. Some say they're the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and different people interpret that in different ways. Um, I I probably think something different. Uh, I, I would agree with commentators who say that the lion represents the king of the wild animals and the ox represents the king of the domesticated animals and the one with a face like a man represents humankind, male and female. And the, the eagle, the one like an eagle, represents the, the, the birds of the air. Basically, what we have here is the whole created order gathered around the throne of God. And then we see the 24 elders, 12 um, from the tribes of Israel, 12 representing, sorry, the tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament. Not every Jewish person, not every Hebrew person, not everyone who was physically circumcised, but those who are circumcised and repentant of heart, who trusted and followed Yahweh in the Old Testament are represented by these 12 elders. The other 12 elders, we believe, represent the 12 apostles and everyone who would follow in their teaching, their their 
their, their witness about Jesus Christ. Those who have been baptized by water and the Holy Spirit. And what we're told about them is they're dressed in white. They are redeemed, forgiven, pure. They're dressed in white robes. They, they, they have crowns on, which is really interesting because in, in Genesis 1, our original creation mandate was to rule the earth, steward the earth, doing what God had asked us to do, living in friendship and relationship with him, with him at the center. We are to, to rule on his behalf. And here we see the redeemed with crowns. They have harps in one hand because they're worshipers. They have bowls in the other hand because the bowls represent the prayers of God's people. So, so here we have the redeemed before the throne worshiping and praying before God. And then they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns down because worship is not an act of, of observation and it's not an act of consuming, it's an act of participation that God's people throughout history are to participate in worship. What else do we see? We see heavenly choirs of angels, 10,000 times 10,000. I don't think it's literal. I think it just means more than the eye can see, more than you can count. We see, or John sees and hears thunder and lightning coming forth from the throne. Throughout the Bible, thunder and lightning is often associated with the proclamation of God's word, with God's voice, speaking, rumbling. And the song of those that are gathered, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. What an image. I bet John needed a nap after that. What an image. Eugene Peterson describes it this way. He says, in worship, every song of life and every impulse to holiness, every bit of beauty and every spark of vitality, Hebrew patriarchs, Christian apostles, wild animals, domesticated animals, human beings, soaring birds are arranged around the throne that pulses light. What an image. And there's a danger if we try to overanalyze it. If we try to think through, what does that mean? What does that mean? If every bit of it. Because what did we learn last week? It's poetry. It's not prose. What John is trying to describe here is the whole of creation worshiping God. It's a little bit of what will be, but, but more than that, much more than that, this is a picture of what worship is meant to be when we gather together. When we gather here in Orangefield, we'll sing songs. Some of them are rich in doctrine. We see that here, don't we? Songs that are sung rich in doctrine. And some of you guys love that. And, and we'll sing songs that are repetitive, that use the same refrain over and over again. That's not a new Bethel Hill songs idea. That goes right back into a monastic tradition where where people would have gathered together to meditatively repeat the same thing as an act of worship, trying to engage their hearts before God. And even before the monastic tradition of it, here we see it in heaven. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They were singing that refrain back when Isaiah had his vision a thousand years before and, and now they're singing it still and they're still singing it today. 
Sometimes we need to use repetitive refrains in our worship. And so we use both. What else do we see? There's a, when we gather here for worship, we encourage a physicality. We, I invite you, if you're able to, to stand to worship God. Sometimes to put your hands out. Some people raise their hands in worship. Sometimes you'll kneel. Here, they lie down, face down on the ground before God in worship. There's a physicality to worship. One of the things we're playing with here in Orangefield and experimenting with is creating a little bit of space, sometimes in silence, sometimes with an instrumental between songs to give you the opportunity as the worshiper to pray your own prayer or sing your own song or even pray or sing in tongues if you have that gift. Because there's an individual response here in the throne room of heaven to worship. When we come together, we, we open God's word, we, we preach God's word, we believe that God is speaking in real time, just like we see here in the throne room of heaven. And we try to engage with what's happening in the real world, in our mission slots, in our preaching, in our prayers. Because worship is not just a one-hour experience inside these four walls, but it affects the whole of creation, the whole world. Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, I, I couldn't find the exact quote, but he, he said something like this. Apologies if I misquote this slightly. He said, from the call to worship is issued. There is an invitation to be caught up into the throne room of heaven, to gather around God and to worship along with the heavenly beings, the saints through the ages, the church universal and the whole order of creation. Until the moment the benediction is pronounced, you're transported back into your church building and sent out into the world to participate in the gospel story. Isn't that class? Isn't that class? Our view of worship's not too, not too big, it's too small. When we worship, we are caught up into the heavenly throne room and are worshiping with the whole created order and the saints throughout the ages and the heavenly beings. It's amazing. You know, as, as I read this passage, I, I, can you tell I love it? I love this text. But as we read this passage, it's important to see where John's eyes are because I think we learn something here. His eyes are not on himself. How often do we describe things through our own experience of them, our own eyes, our own feelings, our own preferences? And even in church, we do that, don't we? It can be hard to get out of your own head. Why is he saying that? I don't like that. What, what, why are we singing this again? What, what, what's he on about? But John doesn't describe it from his own preferences or even his own experience. It's more than that. And he's aware of the diversity in the room. He shares something of the diversity in the room, but, but the other people and the other beings around him are not the focus of what's going on. I think sometimes in worship, we're so concerned with what other people are doing, are saying, are thinking. He's aware of the diversity in the room, but they're not the focus. He shares the lyrics of the songs that are being sung. But again, the lyrics of the songs that are being sung are not the focus. 
I think it's interesting. Like I was always brought up being told, when you're singing, make sure you think about what you're saying, what you're singing. And I think that's really important, but, but the lyrics of the songs are not the end of what we're meant to experience. The lyrics point us towards the one we are meant to experience in worship. You see, in the midst of all of this, everybody's eye in the room, and John's eye as well, are focused through everything that has gone on, on the throne and on God right at the center. When we come to worship in the midst of everything that is going on, our eyes are invited to be on God. I mind when I was a kid, uh, my mom bringing us into church and we'd sit down and we're trying to get the sweets out and talk to our friends and, and do all these things. And I'd glanced across and every Sunday, mom would sit down in the pew and she'd bow her head before anything else had happened. I'm like, mom, the service hasn't started yet. What are you doing? But she explained to me that, that when she came into church, she wanted to just have eyes on God, to focus on God, on him alone. And so she, as soon as she sat down, would just pause for a second and pray, God, I'm here for you. Help me to see you, to hear you, not to be distracted by everything else. Maybe there's something about that for us as we come into church and the temptation to catch up with friends and see what's going to happen and all of it, get our, get our good seat, rush in because we've arrived late. Maybe there's something about just pausing for a second and saying, God, I am here for you. Help me to have my eyes fixed on you, on your throne, on your person. What a picture of worship John gives us. But, but I want to show you as well something else here. There's only two points today. Second point's long as well, so it's still going to take half an hour. There's a posture for worship, a continuous posture for worship. Day and night, they were worshiping. It never, ever stopped. One of my favorite pastors and authors is a guy called John Tyson. I just find... His sermons, his books, so inspiring and enriching. And a while back, he preached a sermon series called This Is For That. This Is For That. And, and we get that in places, don't we? We understand that. This is for that. I, I try to exercise and I try to eat healthy some of the time. I don't always enjoy it, but I make a choice to do it because I, I want to be healthy and live a long life. So I do this because of that. Maybe if you're still in school or university and you're having to sit in on these evenings, even though the weather's been pretty decent, to study, to revise, to do homework, uh, and you're thinking, I can be out with my mates. But you understand that if you want to do well in your exams and, and, and be able to move forward, you have to do this. This is for that. I try to limit my screen time. I'm on social media and I've got Netflix and other digital platforms for watching TV on, but, but I try to limit my screen time because I know that if I increase my screen time, it decreases my concentration for other things. So I do this, so for that, this is for that. I occasionally bring flowers for my wife because 
I, I know she really likes, even though I've got mild hay fever, I know she really likes flowers. And if I give her flowers, I get a few brownie points. And when I suggest I might go for a run later or go to the gym later, it's always better received. This is for that. It's also for other things as well. But hey, this is for that. We, we get that in other parts of life. And we understand that worship is central for a Christian. If you've been around church for a while, you, you get that. Man's chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Worship is, is central for a Christian. We are created to, to worship God. We come alive before God in his presence, worshiping. And, and we also get that it's about more than just Sundays, that we are called to live lives that, that worship. You know, Paul says in Romans, present your, your, your bodies before God as a spiritual act of worship. But how? How is this for that? How does what we do in here on a Sunday for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, impact what we do out there? How exactly is this for that? One of the most powerful pictures that John here, not John Tyson, um, but John who wrote Revelation gives us in Revelation 17 is the image of Babylon or, or specifically the whore of Babylon. Um, obviously, we're slightly uncomfortable with that language, but that's what it says here. And historically, that reference to Babylon was understood to be a veiled reference for the Roman Empire. And, and that's what it meant back then. But in reality, it means something much, much bigger. When, when John here in Revelation talks about Babylon, he's, he's not specifically referring to any one city or one nation, but he's, he's trying to, to talk to the church throughout the ages about the shadow side of the world. Babylon is the deconstruction of the kingdom of God in the world. Babylon is the deformation of the mind of Christ in you and I as believers. Babylon drives the deconstruction of community and gives rise to hyper-individualism in society today. Babylon drives the, the deconstruction of peace and contentment in our own minds, in our own hearts, and gives rise to things like therapeutic consumerism where I can shop myself happy or spend myself happy. Babylon gives rise to the deconstruction of personal responsibility and raises entitlement. Babylon gives rise to the deconstruction of traditional family, family values and, and pushes the fluidity around sexuality and gender that we're seeing and experiencing in the world today. Babylon drives the devaluing of human life amongst the pre-born, amongst the elderly, amongst those with disabilities. And none of this happens accidentally or coincidentally. There are Babylonian forces, evil, dark forces in the world today, fueling our entitlement and fueling our addictions and fueling our insecurities and leading us further and further away from trusting the word of God and the reformation of the image of God in us, which is the process of sanctification in the life of a believer. If you try to get your head around all that, let me bring you back into the throne room of heaven, into John's vision. 
And as we step back into it, we see the Father at the center. Our eyes are fixed on him. And in his hands, he's holding a scroll. And we're told the scroll is sealed seven times. That just means it's perfectly sealed, that, that no one can open it. And, and the scroll is God's rescue plan, his freedom plan, his recreation plan for his fallen creation and for his people. But no one can open it. No one is deemed worthy to open it. No one is pure enough to open it. And John, when he realizes that, he weeps. He weeps for the state of the world. He weeps for the hopelessness. He weeps. When was the last time you wept? As news about abortion laws change. When was the last time you wept? As Afghan refugees continue to flee the country. Looking for some country to open their border to them. When was the last time you wept as you walked through Belfast with your shopping bags past somebody sitting on a sleeping bag with a paper cup in front of them? When was the last time you wept as people who have been coming to this church for years and years just still feel too too fragile and too vulnerable to come back yet because of COVID? When was the last time you wept for the state of the world? Not complained about it, not gurned about it, not ignored it, but wept. Entered into the brokenheartedness that we see in John and wept for it. You see, in the midst of the worshiping and in the midst of the weeping, John hears a voice speak. And I want you to notice something. There's a difference between what he hears and what he sees. And this is really important. John hears a voice speak and the voice says, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David's. It's that image from Isaiah, from the early parts of Isaiah. He hears this voice, he hears this proclamation, the lion of the tribe of of Judah, he will be worthy. And and when we hear that with our Babylon-influenced eyes, we are expecting a figure of power, a figure of authority, a figure of strength. We're expecting a lion to come in like Aslan. We're expecting a warrior to come in. He hears, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But what he sees goes beyond his expectation and brings him into a new place because what he sees is not a figure of strength, but a figure of weakness. What he sees is a lamb covered in blood, covered in scars, slain for the sins of the world. What he sees is this depiction of Jesus on the cross, the one who who was there speaking the universe into existence, the one through whom the whole of creation holds together, battered and bloodied and bruised and torn and pierced for your sins and for my sins. You know, it's fascinating fascinating that the lamb who was slain, the self-sacrificing love of heaven shown through the son of the father, Jesus Christ, the, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world is the most powerful, 
the strongest image that heaven has to offer us. The lamb who was slain is the author of our salvation and he then becomes the object of our worship because he is worthy. The one who who bled for you is worthy. The one who died for you is worthy. The one who, who gave everything he has so you can know life and know eternal life. He alone is worthy of your worship. What has anyone or anything else given you that is that is even close to that? The Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world becomes the object of our worship. Because he is worthy, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. But look a little closer. The lamb who was slain is not just the object, the focus of our worship. The lamb who was slain is also the model for the deconstruction of Babylon and for the release of the kingdom of God in our world today. The lamb is not only the focus of our worship, the lamb is the model for our discipleship. The lamb is not only the one we hold up on a Sunday and worship and praise, he is also the one whose footsteps we follow as we step into the world, whose posture we adopt as we live our lives. The sacrificial love of God releases the kingdom of heaven in the world today. The sacrificial love releases kingdom purpose in the world today. Sacrificial love releasing kingdom purpose in our family. The kingdom picture for family is not, I'm going to get married and have kids so I can be fulfilled and I can have what I want. The the sacrificial love, the kingdom purpose for family is, is, is a husband bowing down to his wife and said, how can I love you? How can I serve you? I am here for you. Married with a wife kneeling down before her husband, saying, how can I love you? How can I serve you? Not clinging to rights themselves, not seeking personal fulfillment themselves, but pouring themselves out for the other. self sacrificing love becomes the picture of strength in a marriage. The same with your kids. How can I love and give my life for you and for kids to grow up in that pattern as well? The model of the lamb, what does it look like to love my parents well? Sacrificial love releases kingdom purposes in hospitality. What does it look like today for for God's people to treat refugees not as strangers here to take jobs and benefits, but as friends to be welcomed in? What does it look like for God's people today to open their homes to children in care? And say, we've got a spare bed. Come and be part of our family in the same way that through the sacrificial lamb, we have become part of God's family in heaven. It's ridiculous, it's audacious, it's a complete affront on your human rights and your personal plans and ambitions, but this is the model for our discipleship. This is what the life of a believer looks like. 
The sacrificial love releases kingdom purpose in our politics, in our government, in a divided country. Not clinging to the past and clinging to, to our rights and pointing fingers and blaming, but choosing love, choosing forgiveness, no matter how painful that is. Creating space for apologies. When was the last time we heard a politician apologize? I'm not sure I have. And I'm not pointing fingers at them. It's because we've created a culture where an apology is not enough. We demand a witch hunt. We demand blood. We demand their job. But sacrificial love, what could that look like worked out through our politics and our government and our leadership? What could it look like to, to reimagine healthcare and industry and education and customer service through a lens of agape love where it's not simply about a paycheck and my own personal advancement and fulfillment, but I am here for you in every sense, in every way. What if human rights is not actually about me making sure my rights are met and fulfilled? What if human rights is actually about me choosing to sacrifice my rights so that I can ensure that your rights are met? You see, this, what we do in here, is for that what we do out there as we gather together, as we enter into worship, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God who is worthy of our worship, the one who was slain for the sins of the world, who is worthy of our worship. As we fix our eyes on Jesus in worship, that very process, week after week, month after month, year after year, it begins to form our hearts. It begins to form our minds. It begins to form the pattern for our our lives. Because here's the thing, friends. The lamb is both the picture of our worship and the pattern for our lives. Let me say that again. The lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world is both the picture of our worship and the pattern for our lives today. I'm going to invite the band to come back up on stage. Let's take a moment and pray together now. Holy Spirit, won't you come amongst us today? Worshiping in the building, worshiping at home. Won't you come amongst us today? And do what you love to do. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, Lord. Maybe we've been distracted. We find it hard to concentrate, hard to focus. But just in this moment, fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. You are the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We receive afresh your forgiveness now. We receive afresh your, 
your, your love now that is poured out for us, that is so freely given. For anyone here today, this Sunday morning, who, who has never made that commitment, has never prayed that prayer, has never asked Jesus for life and for forgiveness, has never turned to him in repentance. Now is your moment. This is your time. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your life to Jesus and pray, God, forgive me. Fill me. Make me your child. And Father, for all of us, every single one of us, as we gaze upon you in these last few moments of our worship service, even now, sanctify us by your Spirit. Even now, form our minds and our hearts and our lives in the pattern of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Form, reform that image of God within us as we pattern our lives on the Lamb, as we prepare to step out these doors, show us what it is to live and love and serve sacrificially as we walk in the steps of Jesus the Lamb. As we gaze upon you this morning, Jesus, as we worship you this morning, we, we get caught up with that heavenly host who, who sing and we join with them in their words, in their song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is our gift to you, this act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.